Patrick, the Assistant Dean for the Career and Professional Development Center at Albany Law School. Before we get started, um, I'd like to mention that today's program will be recorded so we can share the recording with any of our students and alumni who are not able to join us today. If you have questions, please feel free to use the chat function. And during our panel, please feel free to unmute and ask your questions directly. If you'd like to ask questions but remain anonymous, please feel free to send me a message in the chat and I'll read the question. In addition to the Career and Professional Development Center, today's program is also sponsored by the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commission, the Capital District Black and Hispanic Bar Association, and Albany Law's Apalsa, Balsa, and Lalsa Student Affinity Groups. Thank you to everyone who has made this program possible. Today's agenda includes a welcome from the Honorable Rija Rice, remarks from the Honorable Troy K. Weber, as well as a short presentation on the career resources available to our students and alumni. After these presentations, we will have a panel discussion that will be moderated by the Honorable Richard Rivera, who, who will be joined by our alumni and panelists, Brenda Badam, Kyle Ishman, Shali Nadison, and Kadeem Wallaston, and also our Assistant Dean for Diversity and Inclusion at Albany Law School, Jermaine Cruz. At this time, I would like to take a minute to introduce the Honorable Rija Rice. Judge Rice is an Albany City Court Judge and first vice president of the Capital District Black and Hispanic Bar Association. She is also an Albany Law alumna, class of 2005. Judge Rice, do we have you on the call? There you are. Oh, you're muted. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. How are you? Uh, I'd like to thank you for having me and, and, and welcome all the participants uh, today to talk about pathways to uh, the legal profession and uh, navigating and excelling um, at a law firm or in the legal uh, profession in general. I've been tasked with um, explaining or uh, discussing with you the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion and access to the court system. Um, I was recently um, elected to Albany City Court. Um, I was first appointed in August of last year and then uh, elected for this year of 2022. Um, in the court system, the importance of diversity is, you know, it's, it's, it's paramount. The individuals that use the court system, um, both on the plaintiff and on the defendant side, um, come from all walks of life. 
we see in the court system, rich, poor, um, all different races, individuals that speak all different languages. It's really important that the bar, the bench and the bar, actually reflect the individuals that come before our court system in different ways. The law firms that come, uh, the, the, the attorneys that practice in our courts, it's important for them to understand the clients, understand their walks of life and um, the challenges that many clients or many users, I, I, I like to say court users, that many of the court users face. Um, when considering diversity and equity and inclusion, it's really important in terms of um, the view from the court that we put forth um, a process in which the court users feel as though not only they're being heard, but feel as though they are being understood. And um, a, lot of, a lot of the ways that an individual or a court user would, will feel that they're understood is honestly what they see. If they walk into a courtroom and they don't see anyone that looks like them, either with the attorneys or the judges or the other individuals in the courtroom, unfortunately, it can put forth a picture that um, would have a person feel as though they are not receiving equity or are not being included in the process. And so the importance of diversity in, in our court system, it's, it's, you know, it's really important. Individuals, when you go to these law firms, when you're coming to court, when they see someone that looks like them, they feel as though they are being heard. And so I want to make sure that in, in my remarks, I tell you the importance of making sure um, that diversity and inclusion, however you, um, however you define it, is at the forefront of the law firms that you look for. Um, when you're interning, look at the clientele uh, that the law firm is uh, uh, representing and really uh, think about how you provide diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, to that firm because it's so important. Thank you so much, Judge Bryce. Thank you so much for um, providing your thoughts and your advice. It's very important. We appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. And now, it is my pleasure, my distinct honor, to introduce the Honorable Troy K. Weber, um, uh, who is an Associate Justice for the Appellate Division First Department and a co-chair of the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commission and a graduate of NYU Law School. Judge Weber, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, I, uh, as representative of the Williams Commission, as co-chair, 
of the Williams Commission is excited uh, to be a part of this uh, important program. The Williams Commission was established in 1991. Uh, at that time, Franklin H. Williams had been called upon uh, by the then Chief Judge Walkler to investigate and to report on bias and racism within the court system. Uh, as you may be aware, that report concluded that there were two justice systems uh, at work in the courts of New York State, one for whites and a very different one for minorities and for the poor. According to that report, the public perceived the court system to be racially biased and that the courts used primarily by minorities, uh, that would be the family, criminal, uh, civil and housing courts within New York City were grossly, grossly deteriorated and inadequate. They were referred to actually as ghetto courts. Uh, the report also made reference to overtly racist comments uh, from judges in uh, open court across the state. Discriminatory treatment of minority court users, court personnel who were frequently disrespectful and discourteous to minority court users, and as well as court officers who engaged in racist conduct uh, with the public, as well as with their fellow court officers. As an aside, I will mention that in the spring of, I believe, 2020, uh, our current uh, chief judge, Janet DeFiori, called upon Secretary Jay Johnson uh, to undertake a similar investigation and to also render a report. Not surprisingly, but uh, disheartening, Secretary uh, Johnson's report made almost identical findings. The Franklin H. Williams Commission is a permanent independent commission within the New York State court system. We are tasked with eradicating systemic racism in the court system by taking affirmative steps to address and eliminate barriers to racial and ethnic fairness in the courts. Also to increase racial and ethnic group representation in all levels of the court system. We do this through the examination and review of current practices, and we make recommendations uh, to enhance racial and ethnic diversity in the court, we, uh, in terms of the court staff, as well as the professionals uh, within the court system, judicial and non-judicial, as well as in the legal community. The commission is dedicated to increasing diversity in the legal profession. We have partnered with various law schools and have presented programs on increasing the number of individuals of color who apply to law school. We need that pipeline. Uh, we need individuals of color to apply to law school. More importantly, we need to ensure that they succeed while in law school and that they succeed once they become attorneys. We also have a mentoring program uh, for individuals, uh, attorneys of color, who wish to ascend to the bench uh, and who are interested in becoming uh, judges who will be able to, again, give the community, uh, allow for the community to see individuals like themselves uh, when on the bench, when they come into the courtrooms and, and their cases are being litigated. When I graduated from law school, uh, when I graduated from NYU Law School, uh, a number of the uh, uh, individuals, uh, graduates, uh, went into public interest work. I myself went into public interest work. I went to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. 
Um, attorneys of color have traditionally gone into public interest or government positions. And we can certainly debate the pros and cons. However, I believe that we can all agree that there has to be that option to practice in other areas. There has to be an option to attorneys of color to actually go to law firms. According to the National Association for Law Placement, the percentage of Black associates surpassed 5% in 2020. And that was for the first time since the association began collecting data. The share of associates um, who are Black women increased to 3.04%, exceeding the 2009 figure of 2.93. The overall percentage of associates of color increased about a percentage point to 26.48%. So I'll tell you that again. Associates of color uh, are now approximately 26.48%. That was driven largely by the increased representation of Asian associates. Despite modest growth in 2020, Black women and Latina women each continue to represent less than 1% of all partners in US law firms. I'll give you that figure again. Black women and Latina women each continue to represent less than 1% of all partners in US law firms. The percentage of Black partners overall finally surpassed 2%. Just one position was made up of, my, uh, my, of uh, women lawyers where there was an increase, and that was in the non-judicial, uh, excuse me, non-attorney uh, positions. Representation of women lawyers uh, in non-attorney or non-traditional track staff attorneys, meaning those individuals who are not on partner, uh, the partner uh, track, that did increase. There was a, a slight increase from 2019. Among associates, again, the, the uh, share of women was 47.45%. Uh, That's women overall, a historic high. At the partner level, women across the board uh, increased also uh, in 2020. The percentage of uh, LGBTQ lawyers in 2020 was 3.31%, an increase of about one third. Now I give you this, these stats and this data just to show that we're in, when I graduated from law school, uh, the numbers were far less granted. And it is encouraging that these numbers have increased. However, uh, you know, we have to do better. There have to be uh, ways in which to increase the number of attorneys of color, of women, of LGBTQ individuals at law firms. And we have to kind of come up with uh, issue uh, with solutions uh, to, this, uh, to, to this problem. A couple of law firms, I know um, Skadden Arps, um, I think Weil, and a couple of the other law firms do have programs which encourage uh, individuals of color uh, to, uh, to, you know, once they graduate from law school to become associates at the law firms. There are a couple of programs by the bar associations as well to encourage uh, attorneys of color uh, to join law firms. And these are all programs that must continue and these are all programs that we have to support. But we have to come up with other solutions. We have to come up with other ways perhaps that law firms 
look to uh, the the applicant pool. You know, you, you're only going to look at uh, Columbia or uh, Harvard or Yale or NYU or Albany. Are you going to look to other law schools uh, in terms of uh, your hiring? Are you going to impose different or look at different hiring criteria? We all know, you know, once you graduate from law school, the fact that you graduate from law school does not mean that you're going to be a great lawyer. Uh, it does not, it, it, real, it is one indicator, but it is not the overall indicator of how you are going to practice law. You have the fundamentals, yes. So we have to kind of think out of the box to some extent and try to figure out ways in which to increase the numbers of attorneys of color, women, LGBTQ individuals at law firms. Uh, and that's why this uh, panel discussion today is so important so that we can address these issues and hopefully come up with a solution or possible solutions uh, to these issues. So again, I thank you all very much. Uh, and I look forward to hearing from the panelists and hearing their input in terms of what we can do on this very, very important subject. Thank you so much. Thank you, Justice Weber. That was incredible and although the data is slightly uh, depressing. Um, it is hopeful that, that some increases and gains have been made. Um, so now I'd like to talk a little bit about how we at the Albany Law School Career and Professional Development Center help to support our students in finding these jobs, these, these important pathways into law firms and into um, other jobs, including judicial clerkships. Um, so here at Albany Law School, every student is assigned to a career counselor. And I encourage students to meet with their counselor at least once a semester. And the reason being is that oftentimes, career counselors and people in the position that I'm in have a bird's eye view of what's happening in the legal market. And we may know about opportunities and can provide students with information on important deadlines that are coming up and opportunities that you may not otherwise know where to look for. So please make an appointment with your career counselor every semester and come in and talk to us about what could be possible for you. In addition, we're happy to help and often help with application documents, including cover letters, resumes, and personal statements and statements of interest. We know it's very hard to write about personal circumstances, especially when applying for fellowships that are related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we also know how to create persuasive personal statements so that the opportunities, some of which Justice Weber mentioned are available to you and that you put yourself in the best position possible to get them. We use Albany Law Link to advertise internships, field placements, fellowships, and opportunities, especially and expressly available to individuals from historically underrepresented communities. In addition, we send out an email every Wednesday it's our jobs and ops email. And in that email, we highlight diversity opportunities. There are many diversity opportunities with law firms. Uh, the number has grown exponentially in the last five years, and we encourage you to apply for those. We also send out a diversity opportunities newsletter that promotes opportunities um, 
including fellowship, summer associate positions, and job fairs. We have two main recruiting programs, one in February each year, and that happens, and then one that happens every summer beginning in July, in or around July, that focuses primarily on opportunities for summer associate positions with law firms. If you are currently a 1L student, then you will receive emails at the end of the spring semester from our office about this summer's recruiting program, and you should plan to take advantage of it. We will host mock interview programs before the actual recruiting program that will help you to get ready for your interviews, teach you how to research firms, and be ready to answer the questions about why you're interested in a law firm career. I also wanna let you know about our clerkship committee. It's a committee that's made up of alumni and faculty, and it's here to help you navigate the application process for judicial clerkships. Wonderful opportunities that we want you to take advantage of. In addition to the opportunities posted on Albany Law Link, you should take advantage of bar association memberships many of which are free for students, and many offer internship and fellowship programs. One that comes to mind for our Albany Law School students is the Albany County Bar Association's Diversity Fellowship that offers paid law firm positions during the fall and spring semester and creates the opportunity for students to gain some exposure to what it's like to work for a private law firm before they graduate. Others are the Kenneth G. Standard Program that's offered through the New York State Bar Association Corporate Counsel Section and offers paid placements with various corporate general counsel offices. And then of course, the Sonia and Selena Sotomayor Judicial Internship Program that offers internships with judges at the local, state, and federal levels. These are just a few, and there are many more opportunities available through local and specialty bar associations. And I encourage you to join them and become an active student member. These networks will provide you with important professional contacts that will provide you with knowledge and opportunities for your future. I also encourage you to take advantage of the Albany Law School Alumni and Mentoring Program if you don't already have a mentor. You can sign up next fall to be matched with an alumni mentor who can help to introduce you to additional professional development opportunities. And now I will turn to the panel portion of today's program. Our panel discussion today will be moderated by the Honorable Richard Rivera, the super, supervising judge of the family court in the third judicial district and acting Supreme Court justice. Judge Rivera is also recently appointed a co-chair of the Franklin H. Williams Judicial Commission. Congratulations to you, Judge Rivera. On our panel today, we Judge Rivera will be joined by Brenda T. Badam who is an assistant attorney general with the office of the New York State Attorney General and a former associate attorney with Barclay Damon. Brenda is Albany Law School alumna class of 2017. 
Also today, we are happy to welcome Assistant Dean Germain Cruz. Dean Cruz joined the law school in recent months, and he is our Assistant Dean for Diversity and Inclusion, and we're very happy to have him with us. Kyle Ishman joins us as who is an associate with Venable LLP. Kyle is an Albany Law School alumnus and graduated in 2020. Welcome, Kyle. And Shally Nadison is a class of 2006 alumna and is a senior associate with the town law firm. And finally, Kadeem Wallaston, who is a class of 2018 alumnus and is an associate with the law firm of Wilson, Elser, Moskowitz, Edelman, and Dicker. Thank you to all of you for joining us, and I will let Judge Rivera take it away. Thank you, Dean Fitzpatrick, uh, for the introductions, and I truly appreciate that picture keep saying that's what I look like when I first took the bench and what you see on your screen now is what I look like today. <laughs> I feel like President Obama when he first became president and then at the end when he was done, his hair looked a lot different. I, I wanna thank the panelists for joining us and I actually wanna start my first question with Dean Cruz. So Dean Cruz, um, your position there at the law school I don't believe was there when I was a student. So it's fairly new to me. So if you could explain to um, those who have joined us, the purpose of your office, and what services and resources you have in furtherance of diversity, equity, and inclusion that you would like our students to know about. Uh, absolutely. So the, the office is, as you said, relatively new. Um, there was an individual in this position before me some years ago who was not here very long, and then there was a search that lasted um, for quite some time. And so I've been here a little under three months. Um, my office is charged with uh, providing general support to all students um, and creating an inclusive environment where all students feel seen and like uh, they belong. Um, on an institutional level, um, I'm charged with building a strategic plan for the law school around DEI um and developing policies and procedures that that don't exist and that goes across the board everything from human resources um, to academic affairs and student services and also to provide training opportunities for not only our faculty and staff but for our students um, and um, work in conjunction with the faculty and staff at the law school to deal with um, any bias related incidents that we have, although since I've been here, we haven't had any any major ones and I'm knocking on wood. Um, but again, like the primary goal is making sure that our students are are feeling seen and are being um, provided with the opportunities that they need to be successful law students um, and go out into the world and, and productive, competent, um, skillful lawyers, but also culturally proficient lawyers that are able to, to work in a variety of practice areas and with a variety of people. Thank you, Dean Cruz. So to our panelists, I want to ask you, um, what made you decide to begin your career 
in a firm. And for those of you that didn't, because I know at least Ms. Badan did not, but those of you that did not start at a firm, what made you decide to go into private practice? And uh, and perhaps in your case, Ms. Badam, why you went back to work for the, for the state. So perhaps we can start with Ms. Nadison and uh, if you could just explain why you went to private practice. Sure, so actually out of law school, I started at Ernst & Young in Boston uh, doing tax law in a public accounting firm. So that was, um, you know, that was a good experience. And then I got work experience at a firm with hundreds of thousands of employees all over the world. And then from there, I actually, um, just as a change, and I think I had had enough of tax law, I went on to matrimonial and family law, which is totally different. And I'm glad I did it because it exposed me to some work that I, I wouldn't have otherwise done. And also I know now, I don't think I'm cut out for that either. So uh, it's, I tried it because that was, I, I wanted to have a variety of experiences and find my best fit. And I think had I stayed at Ernst & Young, it would have been an interesting experience, but I wouldn't have been exposed to all these different types of uh, legal issues being in such a, a niche area. So for me, private practice was good because it just, uh, it allows me to serve clients, especially at the place I'm at now at Town Law, it allows me to serve clients in a variety of legal uh, needs. Mr. Wallaston, what about you? Well, my career, I started at, um, clerking at the court. So um, my first job, my first job was actually working in the courts, um, but directly after I went into private practice. Um, but if I had to answer the question on why I went to private practice, it was more of a goal of mine. I seen, I, I took my experience from during law school and did the public sector work. And I was able to also get experiences working in private practice. And in my opinion, I thought doing private practice work, uh, I had more, it was more fulfilling for me, at least for me, at least. Um, so I felt like I like working with companies. I like seeing inside of business. I'm inter interested in that aspect of the legal world. And in my opinion, I thought the most, the way to gather that, that um, experience the most was doing private practice. So that's why I went directly into private practice. Thank you. I actually started my career in public service as an assistant DA um, with Albany County, and I loved it. I, I thought it was the best job in the world. <laughs> um, but truthfully speaking, um, as a public servant, you're not getting paid that well. And you are struggling, especially your first year with the loans. Um, and, and it's hard, right? Um, so I transitioned to a law firm where I knew diversity was important. And coincidentally, Shali, Kadim, and I all worked for the same law firm um, where diversity was actually uh, a cornerstone of the law firm. Um, I transitioned back to public service because I valued family time. Um, billable hours is no joke. <laughs> And uh, I, I'm grateful for the experience that I did have in private practice. I learned a lot. I made great friends. Um, but I definitely think what Shali said is true. You have to know what is true to you and what you are, what you want in your future. 
So before I turn to uh, Mr. Isham, what is the firm that you, the three of you worked at? I don't think you mentioned it. Uh, it's Barkley Damon and Omri. Thank you. So, Mr. Isham, if you want to answer the question, please. Sure. So I've been at Venable uh, for a little over a year now. And similar to Kadeem, for me, um, going into private practice had a lot to do with the type of law. Um, I was interested, and I'm still interested, in uh, commercial litigation. That's the practice group that I'm in. So civil litigation, uh, business disputes, um, things of that nature. And the law firm environment is just, um, I guess, was sort of pitched in law school as well as being the more traditional route to get that experience. Um, and so that's why I took that route. Um, but I also agree with uh, Brenda after about a year um, in private practice. I still love it. Um, I still plan to keep my career in uh, private practice. But yes, the billable hour <laughs> is not a joke. So um, it's definitely, it, it teaches you a lot of time management um, and a lot of dedication. And, you know, I've learned a lot, but, but yeah, for me, it was, it was mostly the, the practice area of law that I wanted to start my career and get experience in. So my next question is for all the panelists, but I'll start with you because I believe that you did an internship at the firm you're at or, or at a firm. So if you can uh, give the, the participants an idea of how you got that internship and, um, and whether or not you felt it was beneficial to where you are now. Sure, so um, my second summer of law school um, I did the, the, the OCI, OCR program. Um, the particular firm that I'm at wasn't listed in that program um, at the time. I'm not sure if they are now. So it wasn't quite the traditional pipeline. Um, I actually went to uh, Dean Fitzpatrick, who provided me with a list of uh, alumni that we had at different, you know, larger um, law firms. Um, at the time, I was looking mostly in New York City um, was the area I wanted to be in. So I pretty much just took contact information um, and sent out emails with um, writing sample, cover letter, uh, my transcript and resume, uh, just introducing myself and basically saying, you know, I'm interested in interviewing for your firm. Um, and that's actually what led to where I'm at now. Um, I did have more traditional interviews that were through sort of the recruiting process um, and had other offers. Um, I just happened to choose Venable um, at the time. Um, so I, I pretty much followed the, the traditional process, um, you know, doing first round interviews right in the career center and then um, going to New York to do callbacks and, and that sort of thing. But the career center was, was great. Um, and helping me navigate that space, preparing my documents, all that stuff. So that's pretty much how um, I ended up where I am now. What about the rest of our panelists? I, um, I thought way back when I went to school, so this is almost 20 years ago now, um, I had an externship at the Department of State uh, or sorry, the Department of Tax with the state. And then I also did a clinic, also the tax clinic. So for me, that solidified how much I knew I wanted to be in tax. 
at least for the beginning of my career. And I thought um, the Career Center was so helpful in helping me fix my resume and all that. So um, I also found my job at Ernst & Young through the Career Center. So that's how I got there. Um, and when I left Ernst & Young and came back to Albany, um, you know, just same thing, Googling, searching for companies that have practice in areas that I wanted to do um, and just sent out resumes, made phone calls and using connections too, because Albany isn't a big place. So you're sure to know somebody who knows someone. And uh, I've also found lately LinkedIn has been huge in making connections. So that's a good resource too. Anyone else? Well, for me, uh, I utilize the career center frequently in law school as well. Um, Fitzpatrick probably speak about the amount of conversations that I've had with her numerous times, just trying to figure out what job opportunities were out there because I was so conscious about the school loans and after graduation being able to pay them. So um, my position, I actually learned about it through an email that was circulated throughout the law school uh, about third department as a common uh, post-graduation position. And I actually applied and received an interview and it filled that position. But my, my uh, opportunities in law firm was through networking. And that's also utilizing the law school. There's so many events and so many practitioners that come throughout the school. And especially in the Albany area, they're so personable and they're really there to help you navigate the legal field and help you grow in the legal, legal world. So and especially in Albany, it's so small. So, just utilizing your network and being open to meet everyone else and being personal. Because if people like you, you'd be surprised that you shake one hand and someone else will say, I heard about you from somebody you met one time. And it goes a long way. So let me ask you this because Mr. Isham mentioned the recruitment process. So if any of our panelists want to share your thoughts and your perspectives on the recruitment process, both at the law school or otherwise. Um, I guess I can start off. Um, so to my knowledge, it's, it's pretty standard um, across law schools as far as the recruiting process goes. You submit your materials and, and you sort of select firms or um, I know at other schools they bid for certain firms, but um, largely the same process. And, um, you know, you get uh, an initial screener interview, um, which is usually at the career center. Um, in my experience, what was huge with that was interviewing beforehand, so practice interviews. Um, and the career center was great with that. I can remember at least a couple interviews that I did um, in the career center, um, and with, uh, Dean Fitzpatrick, um, she sort of played the, the role of a, of a law firm partner a couple times and to sort of prep me. Um, and I did that with, um, a few different people. I, I probably went through five or six practice interviews before actually interviewing. And it was extremely helpful because the more times you do it, the more comfortable you are, the more comfortable you are, the more you're able to um, sort of sell yourself, but also just have a natural conversation with the, uh, 
with the interviewers and, and that's really what they're, they're looking for. Um, just someone that they can sit down and have a conversation with and pretty much answer the question of, you know, if I had to deal with this person until one, two in the morning on a case, you know, um, is it somebody that I could feel comfortable sitting and working with? And um, yeah, so, so I would say practicing is huge and um, definitely doing a lot of interviews. I interviewed at firms that at the time I, I didn't even have an interest in just to get the experience, right? Just to have more interviews, have more sit downs um, with people so that when I did get in front of you know, the partners or, or the senior associates that were interviewing me at the firms that I really wanted to be at, I felt more comfortable because hey, I've done this you know, 10, 15 times already. So um, that was huge. So I'll add to Kyle's statement. Um, I remember interviewing in law school for firms, even though I knew I wanted to be in public service. Um, <laughs> and uh, I would do my research beforehand. You'd be surprised how many of our, um, of the people that we met had like YouTube videos up of them playing drums or them with their kids at a park. And I would bring that up during the, the interviews just because it was it was a way to humanize them, but also to let them know, I know you. I've done my research. You can trust me to do research at this job, right? Um, so definitely doing your research. Those practice uh, mock interviews are great. Fitzpatrick is so good. <laughs> um, but also something that Kadeem said before, I think is imperative. Your connections are so important. Um, and without those connections, it, it would be harder for you to get in, especially in Albany and how close Albany is. And you'd be surprised how just one meeting with someone can spark interest in other areas that you had never known before. Um, for example, Shali, and Kadeem, we all work together, but I know I could call them at any moment um, for anything. Um, and it was, it, we weren't even in the same area of the law firm, but we knew each other and would probably be more apt to help others along the way. Um, so I think connections, preparing yourself and then doing as much as you can to be prepared for that interview. So let me ask you this, and, and for those who didn't answer that question, you can still answer it, but along the lines of what you've been speaking of, you know, not everyone is outgoing. We have a lot of students and, and a lot of adult attorneys who are shy and reserved. So what advice would you give for anyone out there like that who really should take advantage of the networking that you've brought up and, and, and if you could share that, or maybe you were that way, and if you could share any advice you give, that would be great. Um, yeah, I can say I, you know, I'm not really big into, or I wasn't at one point, like loving going to these networking events. It was like more like a chore. I have to say it's like a, almost like a muscle that you exercise, like you exercise learning to talk to a stranger and making a five minute conversation with someone it becomes easier as you do it. So I think um, there's all sorts of like networking events. I just went to one on Monday the Albany Business Review had um, a mentoring event, phenomenal by the way, but like 
as a mentee, I go and speak to a mentor, never met them, you know, just know a brief bio of them, but to have to make conversation with them for five, 10 minutes, it's like a, it's a skill you should really develop. And it's not easy in the beginning. It's awkward, of course, but I think it's, it's something that you should practice. Um, just go to different events. I'm sure, you know, Chamber of Commerce events, there's all kinds of things that towns, law schools, even the law school, I'm sure puts on lots of those events. And I think it's just practice. Okay, good evening. I just want to second what Shali said. I think you should definitely start with the law school. Um, that is the best time to start um, navigating, um, just working on your networking skills because when you reach after graduation and you're uh, seen as a practitioner, um, I think the networking, they expect more substance out of your conversations and the conversations tends to be, they are going to expect that you are familiar with networking and having these conversations. But as a law student, you can walk up to these experienced attorneys and they're more open to, you know, extend the conversation, ask you questions, really intrigued about what you want to do. But when you get into practice, there's more questions about what do you do? You have to be able to explain everything. There's more detailed conversations when you're already in the field. So the earlier you start, the better. So if I was a shy student, I would start earlier now and use this as the role to get there. So when I'm done with law school, I have so much experience under my belt. If I could just add on to that. So uh, I'm an extrovert, but I'm an introverted extrovert. So I would push myself, right? I set reminders in my phone every month to email certain people. So for example, I have Joanne every year in July, July 4th, I email Joanne to say, happy 4th of July, I hope you're doing well, right? I set reminders for myself because you have to be one, consistent, but two, for people that you want in your life to be mentors or just in your life to be uh, like a guidepost, you want them to know that you're invested. So I would write down a particular fact about them, something that happened, and then follow up on that fact. So um, I heard you had a grandchild. How's your grandchild? And then every two, three months follow up, how's the grandchild doing? Um, and that surprisingly has led to a lot of connections, but also to just opportunities. That's how I was able to get my job at the DA's office and actually here as well. If, if I could add, um, I think students should think about networking as an opportunity to sort of find your voice. In culinary school, they ask you um, to figure out like what your flavor profile is. So this is like your opportunity to figure out what your flavor profile is, right? Like when you are going into a conversation, what is it that you want that stranger to know about you? And it is most definitely a skill. Um, and also when you are thinking about like how you're gonna participate in the court system and when you are in front of the judge, like that's also a skill that, that requires a lot of practice, particularly if you're an introvert. People don't, don't believe this of me, but I do not like large groups and I do not like talking in front of people. And I literally had a ritual every time I was like, literally would go to the bathroom. I was like a boxer in front of the mirror. Like you can do this, you're all right. You know this, you know what you're doing. I had to talk myself into it. But once I got into that frame of mind, like you couldn't get me out of it. So you just have to figure out what it is that 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 gets you 
to that point, I would advise you to start with folks that you know. So think about all of the conversations that you have with your family members and your friends when they don't really want to hear about your law school experience and they're tired of hearing it. Those are the things that you take on to the, you know, you take on to the next level and you take with you when you go into these networking events. So talk about those things with people that are really interested in it, right? So what about, and maybe Dean, you can give your perspective on this. What about as a person of color, right? Because uh, you may wind up in a situation where you're one of few or maybe the only person and you're going there to network. I, I don't know about the rest of you, but I've, I'm always conscious of that. And, and I've been in many of those situations. So any tips, any recommendations on whether or not you should even think about it, what you should do to get past that thought? How do you break the ice? Any of those questions. And if, and if everything you've already said applies, then by all means, just let us know. Well, I think if you have the if you have the opportunity to um, research who you're talking to a little bit, sometimes that's helpful so that you can understand who you're talking to. The reality is that we just have to work a little bit harder and a little bit smarter, right? And so you need to be prepared as as much as you possibly can. Um, and I think that there is a delicate balance between being assertive and aggressive, and you need to find that because you never want to be seen as aggressive, but you also want them to know that you know what you're talking about. Um, and, and a lot of that comes with practice and, and, and really just in general conversation a lot of times. Like if, if you put yourself in situations where you're able to have very light debates with people, um, it allows you to develop the skills that you need to sort of create that balance. Um, I mean, I'm not an expert on, on assertiveness versus aggressiveness, but but I think if you create small opportunities like that for yourself, you start to develop sort of um, the middle ground that you need to be in a situation and have them understand, like, I definitely know what I'm talking about, and I have the same education that you do um, without... Um, without being intimidating, right? Because part of it is is we are seen as individuals and we are seen as intimidating. And so you have to sort of remove that edge from the conversation. Anyone else want to address that? Feel free. I, I sorry, go ahead. Can go I ahead, find <laughs> uh, uh, Dean Cruz hit the nail on the head. I start off my interviews, hola, como estas? And I off the bat, let people know, yes, there is a difference here. Um, and that difference should be celebrated. And if this is the job for me, you will celebrate my difference. Um, and not in an assertive, just like that, but, but in a way that it, it's blatantly clear that I am going to still be my most authentic self in this job because I do not want to be anything other than that. I also think, um, to quote a book I read once by an Indian author who um, said, why not me? Like it's another thing to practice. Yep, there's differences here, but I exactly like Dean Cruz said, I have the same education as you. I know what I'm talking about, why not me? And another thing, I'm, I'm usually much shorter than everyone I'm around. Like I just am a small person. <laughs> um, so I feel like, I stand up straight and this is my stature and why not me? That's all. It's like a practice it in my head a little bit. Those are all great tips. I'm not that tall either. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to stand up. 
you know, but it's important, to, you know, it sounds like you're all agreeing. It's important that you know who you are and that you go there with the confidence and knowledge that you belong there right? and that nobody can tell you otherwise, even if they actually say it. You're there because you belong there. You have a place there and be proud. So I'm, I'm glad to hear this, the comments that you've made. So now let me ask you, how many of you, because Dean Fitzpatrick mentioned the mentoring program at the law school, and whether or not you participated through a mentoring program at the law school, how many of you have a mentor or utilize a mentor? How important do you think that is? And I believe, Ms. Badam, you, you mentioned that and you talked about that. So maybe you can start with that. Yeah, so I strongly believe in the mentorship uh, program in the law school. Um, I was a mentee and now I'm a mentor. Um, but I will say if you are in a law firm, something that you should be looking forward two is a sponsorship. So there's a very big difference between mentorship and sponsorship. Mentorship is someone who takes an interest in your, um, your, your career, your advancement. Sponsorship, they are intimately woven into your success. So while at Barclay Damon, my sponsor was the managing partner now, Connie Cahill. And we would have weekly chats and we would talk about everything from her grandkids, to the chair that she was using to work, to <laughs> billable hours. And it was an open conversation without judgment. If you are looking into a law firm, you identify first someone who you want to emulate and then see if they're willing to take an interest in you more than just how are you doing today, right? I think that changed my career trajectory. I think that um, it, even though we, I ultimately did not stay with the firm, we were able to build a friendship that even to this day, we still speak. Um, and it helps you be open to the issues that you are having in the law firm, right? We all talked about billable hours. Why not talk about billable hours with someone who has done it for years and can help you? Um, mentorship, if I, if I could just quick comment, um, I think that, um, it's one of the most important aspects of what we do. Um, I know that I wouldn't be where I am, uh, without mentors. I will say, um, my mentors were a little bit non-traditional. Um, not that, you know, there, there wasn't a ton of opportunity for more conventional, uh, mentorship and mentorship programs, um, that are at the law school, which, I think everybody should participate in. Um, I was a little bit lucky and, and I sort of stumbled upon some um, mentors that I, again, still have to this day. Um, actually, the summer right before I started law school, um, I met an attorney by the name of Mishka Woodley. And um, she sort of, I think she was a mentor, but in the way that Brenda said, and, and, and I would say any good mentor would, would be more of a sponsor, right? Because um, really invested in me, um, invested in, in my success um, in so many ways. Um, and then she introduced me and sort of where it dovetails into the, um, the networking is, is that was someone who explained to me the importance of networking. Um, Mishka is very well connected and I was fortunate enough to sort of um, be under her wing and she would take me to networking events. 
um, even as a 1L and start introducing me to people. And I think that that's a huge um, part of mentorship as well. Um, and again, it, it's probably the most influential aspect of getting me to through law school um, successfully and then getting me you know, to where I am now. Um, and it also helped me with the um, uh, networking, which is tough. I'm not, I'm also not um, a, a very uh, extroverted person by nature. It, 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 it is, a, is a practice, right? I was introduced at the ground floor. I, I sort of had Mishka to navigate those spaces with me and, and uh, you know, show me some, some do's and don'ts and, and how to have those, you know, quick but effective conversations with people. Um, and she introduced me to another mentor that I still have now, um, Judge May D'Agostino, who I just talked to today before this call. Um, and so it, mentorship is definitely huge. I also want to echo what Brenda said about making it a point to keep in contact because it does get tough, especially when you're, you think you're busy in law school. Once you start practice and life happens, it gets difficult. So you have to be very intentional about reaching out, um, but it, it pays dividends, right? Keeping in contact with people who have invested in you. And then, um, you know, it, it just, it will carry you through your career. And I know I'm very early in it saying that, but it really has already. And it's opened up opportunities, uh, so many opportunities for me. By the way, didn't we meet through, through Mishka? I know that she's yes. introduced me to a lot of people. <laughs> so. Yes, we did at an event at the law school that she encouraged me <laughs> to go to um, on a day that I had been studying a little bit late and didn't feel like going, but she said, hey, you know, there, there are people here that you need to meet and that this, this will be good for you. So yes, uh, yeah, we did. So for those of you who are out there and are introverted and shy, um, I was gonna suggest that tip to go with someone else who maybe can help ease the way until you start getting used to those conversations and and Mishka's good for that. But um, any of the panelists I'm sure would also be open to the same thing. So let me ask about the, the culture at the firms where you all work or practice. If you can share the culture there, whether dress codes, whether any do's and don'ts that you feel you want them to know if they should work at a firm. I guess I'll start. Um, well, majority of I, I've just, my current firm, I've only been with them for about two months. So I'm still learning the culture. Um, but I can tell from once you've done it once in the private practice, you have an idea of how the politics works in private practice. Everybody's personality is different. Who you work with really depending, really who you work with is going to be dependent upon your experience in private practice because uh, in Barclay Danning in specific, we worked in the Albany office. The experience of associates in the Albany office was completely different from associates in the Syracuse office and the Buffalo office and moving on. So uh, what I've learned and what I took from my experience from Barclay Danning, I actually know that you have to play it safe and tread lightly when you first start and, you know, Ask associates if you need to make sure that you build a relationship with one of their associates that's willing to tell you the ends of it. They'll tell you this partner is not going to respond to your email. Either. Don't take it offensive. That's just how they work. They're going to send you work last minute. 
they're not going to check on the due dates for us or anything. So you gotta, you have to make sure you let them know when something's due. So understanding those little nuances is going to make you successful in the law firm. And lastly, I would always tell someone navigating a law firm, try to find a mentor in the law firm, um, preferably someone that is already established because they'll tell you how to move up the ladder. You know, so those are the things I've been doing and I'm also doing. Um, luckily, networking, I have a very good relationship with the regional managing partner of this law firm, so I, of this office, so I'm on to a good start, I can say that. Anyone else? I remember when I started at Barclay, Kadeem and our offices were right next to each other. And I remember going into Kadeem's office and saying, have you heard from this person today? Because I have not. What is happening? <laughs> um, so uh, cultures depend on the firm and also the firm partners. You can have great partners, but just not responsive or communicate the same way that you do, right? Um, and so being very clear and very open when you first get an assignment about timeline, how you want to um, communicate and how often you want to communicate is very important. Um, but also, like Kadeem said, having someone that you can run over to their office and say, hey, is this person alive? Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> that also helped as well. I've worked at um, really, really big firms and really small firms. And I say, I think I've noticed in the big firms, it's more formal, necessarily so because they have to manage so many, so many people that there are like levels to communication and there's a more of a distinction between the levels of associates, mid-level, high-level partners. Um, and so I think it's also good to get a experience at different types of firms to see, this is a good fit for me. This is not so, such a good fit for me. Um, the firm I'm at now, I would say is smallish and it's more, I, will, I wouldn't say casual, but um, not actually sure what the word is for the opposite of that big, big firm formal type of culture, which um, I think we experienced more at Barclay Damon. Um, so it also depends. I mean, it's always though, so such a good thing though, to be able to have friends and mentors at the place, like everyone said, just to re reiterate, just whatever the culture is, to be able to have someone there that you can really talk to about anything and know it's, you know, a safe space for you. I would also add that once you um, once you sort of figure out what the culture is and where you fit in there, um, trying to figure out, so nothing's forever, right? So that job may not be your forever job, but figuring out what you're going to get out of your experience there. My, my first law firm, I worked at a really small law firm in DC, but it was a highly resourced firm and the managing part, but the managing partner, the owner was, a, in general, was just a terrible human being. But he, I mean, he traced me around Washington, D.C. like like no other, right? Until I realized what he was doing, right? Like I was his guy. Um, and once I realized that, I created opportunities to separate myself from him in those meetings so that people would get to know, to know me, right? Like not know me in conjunction with him. And it also forced me to build my own professional reputation because he was known as a very contentious attorney 
um, and I would walk into meetings sometimes and, and his automatic response because I worked for him was that this was gonna be a terrible meeting. And so I learned how to be sort of a, a kind lawyer um, really quickly because I had to. And so figuring out what you're gonna get out of a particular experience is really important so that you can work on that. And when you start doing that, sort of some of the other stuff takes a back seat you know, to, to what it is that you're trying to get out of the experience. So what about impressions making? I, I personally believe that our first impressions are important and it's hard to overcome a negative one, um, but a lot easier to, you know, support and, and, and reinforce a good one. So how do you make a first good impression at a firm if you uh, get a job at one? Any thoughts on that? And what about if you want to include that or maybe answer this one instead, how important do you think your ability to write is and what suggestion would you give? I mean, I know as a judge, I get a lot of written material and I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. But <laughs> so if you could share with our, our participants, any thoughts on that? Well, from, from my perspective, I think private practice generally, you're going to do a lot of writing. And, and that includes you know, a lot of memorandums, a lot of in-depth research. So if you are in law school and there's something that you should try to hone into, the better you're able to equip with the skills to write a memorandum quickly, as well as um, get the substance, it's going to be better. And to make the right first impression, I think you should take your time on your first assignment. Um, you will, your first writing assignment can be dependent on if that partner even sends work to you, uh, you know, it can lower your workload. Because one of the things that's not discussed much, at least when I was thinking of private practice, is that you have to reach billable hours, but in order to reach it, you have to receive the work. And in order to receive the work, you have to give the work, the work quality that these partners expect. So uh, I would say take your time, really think thoroughly before you turn in your first assignment because a good work product could have you have a full plate of work. You might have too much work because you did such a great job. You say, I received work from this associate and he did such a great job. And they'll say, oh, maybe I should send the work as well. So word of mouth can pass good or bad. So that's my uh, advice at least. And different partners have different styles, right? So certain partners like more um, uh, expressive writing and certain partners like very matter-of-fact writing and it all depends on your audience and who you're gonna give it to. Um, so using those friendships and mentorships that you've made along the way to figure out how your writing should be for this specific partner will definitely save you a lot of editing in the future. Yeah, I would say, especially in private practice, um, at least in my experience at my firm, um, work product speaks over, over all. I mean, I, that's not to say that, you know, uh, generally communicating well and having relationships is not important. Um, it definitely is. But exactly what Kadeem said is pretty much how it works. Um, that first assignment, I would say, even more than speaking with someone, um, 
is is crucial because really what it is is thinking in the mindset of this is going to a partner and then this partner is submitting this to a client right and your, your job is really just to make the person above you to make their job easier right and the less work they have to do um correcting or um redoing the better that first impression is really um and so definitely i would say attention to detail and especially on the first assignment especially as a junior associate attention to detail and taking your time and maybe spending some extra time proofreading extra time uh drafting or redrafting um will pay off in the long run rather than you know trying to to rush something out the door um you learn to be able to do things on a quicker timeline that comes with time and practice but really uh yes that first assignment especially if it's if it's a, a large memorandum or um you know a large piece of research that a partner needs um or senior level associate, um, that's going to go a long way um, because when they get that and they look at it and they say, "Wow, I can, I can use this. Um, this is exactly what I asked for," and um, you know, I can either submit this to the client or to the court. Um, that's going to go a long way because then, again, they're when they when they have a decision to make. Oh, what associates do I need? You know, or who am I going to go to for this project? Ah. I remember uh, so-and-so submitted that, that memo and, and it, was, it was really clean um, and I really need this done. So I'm gonna go back to that person. Um, so that also brings up one other thought that I have is that ask a lot of questions sooner rather than later. Um, that's really important. Um, once you work with someone for a period of time, you, like Brenda said, like you'll learn their style. Everybody does have different styles and what they want. I've worked with different people at the firm where it was the right way with one partner, but not the right way with another partner. And that's within the exact same practice group on similar matters. So um, that's also important. And that's where asking questions early um, comes from. You know, what's the timeline? Um, what do you have in mind for the final, you know, deliverable? How would you like this organized? All those questions up front, rather than after, you know, corrections need to be made. Because then when you get that information, you take your time and you submit something that really adds value and um, makes their job easier. That's when you'll start getting repeat work, um, you know, and people talk. Uh, I mean, I've had um, partners that I have good relationships with that, you know, have made me privy to the fact that there are meetings between partners and, and senior level associates and counsel. And, um, you know, you want your name thrown around in a good way. And, and once it is up front, it, it will take you, um, you know, it will carry you, so to speak. Uh, one thing I just want to add to that. Oh, sorry, Dean, you go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Dean, go ahead. Oh, um, so sometimes you go into a law firm with an idea like, I'm a litigation attorney, or I'm, I do this, I do estate planning. And I've, I mean, I've been practicing for 16 years now, and I still sometimes will get an assignment where it's something I've never done. Like recently, the partner asked, can you just handle this collections matter? I've never touched before, but I think 
it's good to be eager to learn new things because you never know, like you touch something and it's like, oh, wow, I actually really like that. Or I have a, a knack for this. I really want to try it again. Or maybe even the opposite where it's like, I know I never want to do litigation work. The thought of actually appearing makes me uh, nauseous. So it's like, I know I don't want to do that. So, but someone was on maternity leave and I, and partners said, can you just handle this quick appearance? And like, I think people are more eager to give you work when you're not, when you're not saying, oh, I guess, I mean, if I have to, and more like, oh yeah, why not? Why not me? I can do it. Let's, let's try this. So I think be eager about new work too. I was just going to ask Judge Rivera, I don't know if you are taking questions, but one of our students has had her hand up for quite some time. We were going to start at, at about 1.30, but we can okay. start. Yeah, no, we can start at 1.30. I just didn't know. Well, it's only, I was going to say it's only three minutes away. <laughs> <laughs> so we can certainly start there. But I do want to say this, that um, the, the impressions that you leave are important because uh, as, as you heard the panelists mention, it can lead to more more work, more positive work. It, it can lead to improvement, upward mobility within the firm that you're working for, or maybe even lateral moves or outside of that firm. So I always say it's important to keep in mind the impression that you're leaving. And as a person of color, I think that's even more so important because let's face it, that's what most people see when for most of us when we work, walk in the door. Right? That's the first thing they see. And I have nothing against that. I you know, I say I'm beautiful and brown and I love it. And so I don't really care that you see my color um, when I walk in the door, but it's important for me to make sure that I leave a lasting and positive impression so that when I'm gone, you remember me for the good stuff. <laughs> and <laughs> so um, if, if anyone else wants to share on that thought, I thought Dean Cruz, you wanted to say something on, on that thought, but you didn't, so that's okay. No pressure. So I know that we were, I'm sorry, go ahead. I will, I will comment <laughs> if you like. Um, you know, I, I think impressions are important, right? But I think that we also have to, um, like I, I made decisions in my life based on um, what I was willing to give up, right? In terms of my identity and uh, my forward appearance. And I mean, you all can't see it here, but I wear earrings, my nose is pierced, I have tattoos. And, I made those decisions and I made career decisions based on um, how much of, of how important this was to me, right? And, and it's important to me for a number of different reasons that I won't go into now. And so um, you have to decide how much you're willing to give up sometimes um, and how important it is to you to keep certain things that are that are dear to you and find the opportunities that allow you to be the person that you that you want to present to be, um, and and I think that professionalism and appearance is very important. I think that um, that impressions are very important, but I think that there are also opportunities for you to build those impressions outside of your appearance sometimes. And so that, but again, there's a balance, right? And so you make decisions based on um, what makes you comfortable and how you want to. Sort of how you want to exist in the world and what's important to you. Thank so you, Dean Cruz. The law firm route was probably not going to be for me very long. <laughs> <laughs> so we can we can open up the floor to questions. Um, 
Dean Fitzpatrick. I don't know if you see who I might do. have. I do. So um, Isabella has been has had her hand raised. Isabella, would you like to unmute and ask your question of the panel? Absolutely. First, can everybody hear me? Yes. Yep. Okay. Well, thank you all for your time and your advice. I think uh, this event is very important and impactful, especially for the diverse community. I myself have been struggling with summer internships and thinking, oh no, <laughs> I've been wanting to go into public interest my whole life, but now loans are a thing. Like, what do I do? Um, so I think it's, it's very informative to listen to all of your perspectives because it gives me a more realistic feel of what I should be considering. Um, but at the same time, I do have like this conflict that I wanted to share just to see if anybody has feedback. But I'm kind of the opposite of, of Kadeem where he said, you know, business motivates him and he loves having clients that are companies. I myself did not uh, perform as well, for example, like in contracts as I did in civil procedure. So I'm a lot more motivated by uh, you know, defending, maybe trying to close a justice gap or defending the most vulnerable. And that comes from my experience living in Latin America as well. And I know that that's just a part of who I am. So I am not daunted by, you know, my capacity to be in a law firm. I'm not daunted by my capacity to do the hard work, but I am daunted by, you know, doing the hard work for a person or a partner at all hours of day. Is that truly going to motivate me to do the hard work like I will be if it's for somebody that actually like resonates with what I think to be my purpose. So it's hard to think of these considerations. And even the other day I was thinking, I was listening to the Supreme Court considerations and they were saying how like all of them had had complete public interest, uh, you know, lifetime. So it's like, well, how in advance am I supposed to be thinking? Like, I don't know if that's something I want, but I'd like the option. Um, but I guess it's just really hard to struggle with these things and to start thinking of the finances. So how much should I really like be concerned about the financial plan and put aside my passion for that? Well, for me, um, I do like the justice work and working with persons as well, but I know I would take that work home because it was so personal to me. And that's one thing with me, I want to be able to leave work and not think about it. Working with a company to me, they have the money. They're fine. They'll be okay. They lost some money. It's a dispute. But uh, thinking about finance is going to be based on the person. Um, I don't know. No one really knows an individual's financial circumstances. Some, for me, personally, I'm a first generation law student. First, uh, first, no, first ever to go to law school first generation college graduate. So finances were very important to me um, specifically because I don't come from a certain family that I'm able to say, okay, if I take this public service work and I put the time in, maybe not up front, I'm not gonna make money, but down the line, I'll be okay. And I have some support in the meantime. I knew that I had to go out there and make it on my own for the most part. Um, I'm, I'm being an example for my younger siblings and my younger cousins and I am actually an asset or a helpful person in the family to help other people. So because I had that on my back, it was different for me. Um, so you have to basically think about your circumstances and then be honest with yourself. Is finances gonna be important? Because everybody wants to be in their passion, but at the end of the day, the real world doesn't pay, passion doesn't pay all the time. 
you know, and that's just the unfortunate truth. You can also do pro bono work in a law firm. So it's, it's still, you still have the option to do that work. If you want to add it to your plate, trust me, they'll take you. So to add on to Kadeem, while I was at Barclay Damon, it was right after the George Floyd murder. murder. And um, I remember thinking this was something that I wanted to work on. And this was something that I wanted the firm to support me on. And so we worked together to provide CLEs for protesters about their protester rights. Um, and it was not related to any work from businesses. I was in the healthcare practice area, nothing to do with healthcare, but this was something that one, I was passionate about. And as a member of this firm, you should also be passionate about. Um, and so it allowed me to exercise my passionate, uh, to, to do something good for the community, but also do my work, right? Um, the other thing I'll say is there are some government jobs that pay just the same, if not better than law firms. They're far and few between, but they exist. Um, and the only way to get them is to really build that connection and be on the lookout because they don't come often, but when they do, you jump on them. Um, but with a law firm, I get, I, I resonate with you because I had that same feeling, like I'm selling out, right? That's how I felt. It, it, I didn't feel that when I was in the law firm because I was able to do what I believed was right even while doing work in the law firm. You know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with thinking about meeting your financial needs because you're gonna have loans that need to be repaid. So you should never feel like, okay, I, I, I feel bad that I'm taking this job. Um, but you can see it as your starting point, as a way to address your finances and, and getting to a place where you can do the public interest work. I mean, I, I think Ms. Badam had a very, uh, had a wonderful idea there where she brought into the job that she did have something that tied her to her passion. And, and you can look for those opportunities within any uh, office that you work for and to the extent that they're amenable to it, allow that to serve as your, your tap into that part of you until you can get a job that you can afford to take doing public interest. I first started with a solo practitioner. And fortunately, because he was a solo practitioner, he couldn't offer me any benefits outside of my salary. And so I did have to transition out of that. But I went to work there because it was criminal defense, which was my passion. He was Puerto Rican like I am. We were both bilingual. And I saw that as a potential bilingual law firm, two Puerto Ricans in the capital district. It just didn't work out the way I envisioned it in my mind. Um, but you know, you have to consider your financial needs. Just one hospital visit and I would have been poor for the rest of my life because <laughs> I just couldn't afford to pay for it. I could jump in really quick. Um, I will say as well um, that I completely agree um, with what everyone has said um, and um, especially agree um, also with, with Kadeem coming from, you know, similar circumstances. You know, I had certain, uh, you know, uh, I don't come from a lot of wealth. So, you know, that was in the back of my mind too. And, you know, when certain opportunities presented themselves to, to, to jump on that. But I, I will also say that one thing, at least from my perspective that I've seen um, in the legal profession, 
um, that is a little bit unique is that, um, you know, the law is a lot like, you know, 50 flavors of soda. Like it, it's, it's expected that when you're young, you're going to sort of try um, a lot of different flavors, right? Um, to sort of, and it actually makes you more valuable, um, I think, at least from my perspective, later on in your career and, and looking at, you know, attorneys that I look up to that are, that are more senior and looking at, you know, their resumes and their experiences is you'd be surprised how many people spent a year or two here, a year or two there um, at different firms doing different um, practice areas, maybe a little bit, you know, go from private practice to the public sector and back. Um, and so one thing I will say, and that's not to say that, you know, if you go somewhere and you, and you love it, don't stay. Um, but it's just that, at least from my perspective and what we do, that opportunity is there. And I will say that private practice, and this is not a, a private practice plug per se, um, but I will say that, you know, at certain firms, it does open up a lot of doors later on in your career. Um, and so, you know, you may have a passion to be um, a prosecutor or um, to work in, you know, or, or defense work or, or wherever it is in, in um, you know, in the public sector. And maybe, you know, if you do have, you know, financial concerns you, and, you, and you have the opportunity that presents itself to, to go to, you know, a, a private practice firm or a larger firm, and, and you do it for a year or two to sort of get that financial base, um, and then you can go and pursue those opportunities. And in my experience, you know, having that on your resume will open doors, even in the public sector. Um, it will definitely open doors. Um, and then, you know, going forward in your career, even with dealing with, um, you know, less uh, entity clients, more individuals, even having that is, is a confidence boost when you're trying to get clients and, and when you're trying to further your career later on. It might not be where you want to end up, you know, um, you might use it as a means to an end, right? Get the experience, get, um, you know, uh, the pay, which certainly isn't bad, especially, you know, in how expensive things are now and with loans and just trying to start off. Um, it can definitely be an asset that's not necessarily like I'm trapped in this, you know, private practice bubble. It can be something that you use as a stepping stone to get where you want to be in your career. And, um, you know, you never know, you might actually like it. So, um, and if you don't, you, you sort of um, take with you the lessons that you, that you learn and then the work ethic and the training. And then, and then you go take that to, to a different area of the law, a different flavor, if you will, that you're, you're more passionate about. So Dean Fitzpatrick, I know that we're running short on time. Uh, I'll turn it over to you if there's time for another question, certainly, but if not, I'll turn it over to you either way. Thank you very much, Judge Rivera, and thank you to all of our panelists today. This was an incredibly informative panel, um, and I'm sure our students learned a great deal. Um, so I don't see any other questions in the chat, and so I will, um, end the program by saying thank you to all of you. Thank you to our speakers, Judge Rice, Associate Justice Weber, of course, Judge, Judge Rivera for moderating the panel and our panelists, Brenda Badam, 
Dean Cruz, Kyle Ishman, Shalani Nadison, and Kadeem Wollaston. Thank you very much. Thank you also to our student affinity groups who came out for this program and supported um, the development of the program enthusiastically. I want to thank Apalsa, Balsa, and Lalsa. And special thanks to our alum, Mary and Krissa, who did a whole bunch of background work for this. And I would be remiss if I didn't give a very special shout out to Executive Director Mary Lynn Nicholas Brewster and Deputy, or sorry, Senior Counsel Allison Clark, who are just amazing partners to work with. Thank you all so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you all for your time and your advice. And I will say before we end the program, I am positive that our alumni would be happy to talk to any of you offline if you care to reach out.